welcome to this week's episode of Forensic Chemistry Part. I am your host, Michelle, and joining me today is my co-host, Isabel. Hello, how are you going today? Hello, hello. And joining us today is a special guest. We have Edge of the Crowd co-founder and a person with many hot takes, Jackie. Hello, hello. I'll um, try to tone down some of my hot takes in this episode. Look. <laughs> Given the subject matter, I think this is inevitably going to be an episode with a lot of spicy hot takes. So we invite them with open arms. We welcome them. That's what we want to hear. Yes, yes, yes. That brings us perfectly to introducing the topic of today's episode. Today, we are going to be talking about the Mona Lisa. Yay! (laughs) The one that everyone's heard of. That one. The one that's been in the news more this year than in like the past decade. It's on everyone's minds or perpetually, but now it's actually appearing in our news feeds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Mona Lisa, quite the cultural icon of our moment, but it's such a strange cultural icon because it feels like it's been around forever. Like it's always been famous. Like she was mm. always famous. Yeah. But actually, like that's not really the case, is it, Isabel? No, definitely it was more of a recent, like in the in the 20th century, that sort of became the icon that we know it today that sort of started being in our newspapers originally and then eventually into our news feeds. Because, I mean, really, it's just sort of a painting of a Renaissance lady, isn't it? Yeah, it's just your little portrait woman. Yeah. But, yeah, we wanted to talk about her because it does feel like she's everywhere now. And also the, the story about how she came everywhere is uh, very much heavily embedded in crime. Yay! <laughs> so we are going to talk about the OG crime that put Mona Lisa on the map today, as well as the subsequent things that have happened to it that have come about because she became a cultural icon and it's always fun to commit crimes on cultural icons, clearly. Yeah. And yeah. then we will talk about some crimes against her that have happened by the culture yes <laughs> this is why we are art crimes and crimes against art yes we take both <laughs> sides of the debate you know we want to understand why people commit crimes against her as well as you know really hold those to account for those who have done some bizarre things correct i mean i'd also add that in this case the crime is almost why it's iconic um otherwise it would probably just be any other portrait in a gallery yes absolutely so let's start with basically setting the premise about the Mona Lisa we've already described her very much as just a lady in a portrait but let's give some more details (laughs) before we jump into everything else uh in terms of what the work of this is a work painted by our fave Mr Davinci Mr Davinci Mr Davinci painted this in 1506 and it is a sort of half portrait of a Florentine noblewoman, Lisa de Giocondo. So it's sort of got that name, Mona Lisa, because Mona is sort of a um, title in Italian. So she's the Mona Lisa. So it's commissioned by her husband and then eventually made its way with Da Vinci to France and into the Louvre, where we see it today behind a little bit of glass. Correct. In terms of describing the painting, this is where some of the mystery gets shrouded when we try to describe it in any more detail. That has to do with the fact that the style of painting that Devinke used is very much hazy and playing with light and shadow without concrete lines. So She's when an people, enigma. 
she's an enigma. When we ask questions like, does she have eyebrows? Is she smiling? The reasons for those questions is that we don't know where her lips begin and end and we do not know where her eyebrows begin and end. We just needed some hard lines and maybe she would not be such a cultural icon as we know her. She would just be a little blip. If Dvinky did not go so hard in the chiaroscuro, maybe we, we, we would not care so much. Truly. So that's the painting. Now mm. on to the more important question. Do we rate it? Well, um, I've never seen her in person, so I feel like it's a bit rough of me to judge someone who I've never met. Um, but, you know, she's certainly not my favourite work. How about you, Michelle? So I have... Saying that I've seen her is probably an overstatement. I've glimpsed her. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so in my first year of university, between semesters, a friend and I went to London and Paris for a fun month-long adventure. In jaunt. A little jaunt. We did that in place of a gap year, basically, or yeah. schoolies, both. Nice. And that was pretty fun. However, what I do remember about our strategy within the Louvre was to see a lot of stuff, but also when we got to the room where the Mona Lisa was in, as usual, and as it always is now, basically, it's very crowded in there and everyone is trying to take a terrible photograph on their phone of it or a okay. selfie of them with it. Yeah, my hot take, I think we should ban photography in galleries again. <laughs> <laughs> We've gone backwards as a society when we let people start taking photos in galleries because I'm like, just... What what do you, what do people do with these photos? I feel like the thing is also it's not just not taking photos, but they don't even like enforce no flash photography properly because people will take the photo of a painting that is definitely behind glass, like the case of this or sunflowers or pretty much anything that's had something thrown at it this year. And then it's like when you take the photo, all that comes back is your flashlight coming back at you. What's the point? You can view this picture online. At that point, it's actually worse than what you could have as a phone background. Just Google it. I guess we are backtracking from our be reeling in the museum concept that we introduced <laughs> many episodes ago. Anyway, back to my story. I was there. I knew I was in the room. The room was crowded. I was not that interested. Going in, I think I knew that it was going to be an overrated viewing experience. So mm -hmm. I like, as I was walking past the room with the goal of seeing something else, I glimpse in see it a little bit from like a distance and I think okay that's cool I've seen it now and then I just keep walking that's the extent that I have seen the Mona Lisa yeah well I've actually ventured into that room in the Louvre and I can say with great certainty it's not the most impressive painting in that room alone it's also a lot smaller than I think a lot of people expect because in your head, you kind of build it up to be something that is, in a way, life-size. Like, yeah. her head is the size of my head. It's not. It's quite a small painting. Meanwhile, there are incredibly detailed paintings that are, like, the length of my apartment in that room, as well as other gorgeous paintings as well. And yet, this is the one that has the massive crowd around it. So you kind of, like, in the sense of FOMO, still want to look at it and be like, is it really that good? It's a nice painting. I think it still would have been nicer a hundred years ago. It's aged a lot. And so a lot of detail has been lost because of the age. You can barely tell that she has the veil of sorts over her head at this point, as well as a lot of the detail in the actual fabric that like you can see it was there, but it's just not quite the same as what it was anymore. 
and naturally like how much can you trust people doing restoration on this painting yes well we had a lot to say about restoration a few episodes ago didn't we oh yes the bigger problem with this one is that every day that painting is not on that wall is probably like a major loss financially to the Louvre Mm. people go to see it so taking it down for any period of time there's not anything that's comparable to replace it with that's not already up that you can use or you just have to cop it and be like look maybe for the next three to five years as we're like diligently restoring this battered painting we're just not going to have as many people visiting do you reckon they could do an exchange where the Louvre gets monkey Christ and then the Louvre sends the Mona Lisa to Spain to be restored? <laughs> I think that's an option. Oh because, my like, God. Because, like, that would make, I would go to the Louvre to see that. I would battle the crowds to see monkey Christ. Monkey Christ is worth taking a selfie with, but I think it's on a wall. I don't think it's, like, an isolated image. I think it's, oh. like, on the wall. So you would have to cut off that wall. That's such a shame. But I mean, we will just have to go podcast on tour to visit Monkey Christ. Oh, as far as comparable art, the best exchange you can possibly get is getting a majority of the Van Gogh collection to replace this one picture, which means that you've got to make an exchange with Amsterdam and London. So I think they're both going to be asking for the Mona Lisa in that case. And look, I wouldn't be giving it to London, but that's, that's just me. They're just not going to give it back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised they don't have it already. <laughs> I can see something working out maybe with like the Uffizi just because they have all that Titian and stuff. However, the Uffizi has been quite messy with suing people at the moment. So maybe mm. it's best to stay out of their way and let them do whatever they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> what was it that happened recently? The director got into some fisticuffs with the government because of some public holiday and whether or not they needed to be closed on a public holiday. Why this? That's pretty funny. I did just picture him actually having fisticuffs and I was like, oh. <laughs> well, you know, the Italians with their words, basically fisticuffs. Yeah, yeah, I rate that. Okay, so we've sort of like established that the Mona Lisa itself is probably not, you know, we don't we don't rate it that highly as an artwork and it's more been the scandals that have surrounded it that have really elevated it into the status that it now maintains as like the one artwork. Why do we as a culture rate it, is that question. Yes. It wasn't like until the 1800s that like critics even saw it as like a masterwork. And that was really sort of just within the art community that people were like, oh yeah, that's a Renaissance work. That's a good one. Of the Vinci's Earth, that's a nice one. It was not until 1911 when the Mona Lisa was stolen that it really sort of came into the public imagination as the one artwork. So, Michelle, did you know much about this scandal? I had heard about this scandal while studying, I think, Mm. a little bit, just in terms of getting more into funky little art crimes. But also, I think, because when you learn about the origins of art history, what you learn about a lot is Giorgio Vasari, who was around when Da Vinci was still the hot thing of the moment and wrote a pretty extensive history and biography of a bunch of artists that he collated into the book, The Lives of Artists. Mm. And Mona Lisa featured in that. So there is record of it. It didn't really pop up. And I think that was when I was like, okay, so when did we start caring about it? Because clearly uh, the Academy did not (laughs) for a (laughs) long time. Yeah. Yeah. When it was stolen, it just sort of really captured the public imagination, sort of brought up a lot of conversations about what what is of national significance. And I think that's where it sort of 
began to take its place as the D1 artwork. So in 1911, Perugia, who was a house painter and glazer who was working at the museum, took it upon himself to steal the Mona Lisa. I don't think it must have been that hard to do. I think he just sort of took it off the wall and took it with him. And what I find quite funny is that it just took them two days to even realise it was missing. So it was obviously not considered that significant if it took them two days to be like, oh, that's, it's no longer here. Yeah, even within the oeuvre of Da Vinci works, it's not the most techie-specky mm. because he's like a math boy, a math yeah. and science boy. It's just a portrait, like we said. Technically, it's quite good because Leonardo was good at what he did. Yeah. But that was all really to it. So maybe you would expect now that there would have been a bit of a hoo-ha, at least that a Da Vinci got stolen. But mm. even in recent times, when lesser-known paintings by greater artists have been stolen, they don't make as much of a wave as you think they do. Mm. So part of it tracks, but also part of it doesn't. But also, like, Jackie, wouldn't you agree that the Louvre is huge? Yeah, it, you, you need, like, five days to actually go through it <laughs> if you really want to see everything. I think that's how it so goes unnoticed for as long as it does. I also think that a little bit why it goes unnoticed is because if you compare it to a lot of other Da Vinci work, it's one of the few that is even then at least a little bit iconic that isn't religious. And I think that had one of the ones like John the Baptist or we're talking the smaller paintings rather than something like the last supper there isn't this religious symbolism attached to it which has its own emotional attachment to it that it can kind of just go missing and then with that there's a lot of paintings on the wall like the Louvre like it is actually possible for one of them to just go missing there are rooms with like 50 paintings on one wall there's rooms like that at NGV in Melbourne it's honestly not impossible especially if it was just like a slow day the first day that it went missing yeah i also think those sort of years the louvre was doing a lot of like restoration sort of work so works being taken away to be photographed and then put back on walls so i think you know probably if you saw an empty space it was just generally assumed that might have just been having a little rest or something along those lines one of my favorite quotes was when the director of the museum. Jean Théophile Omol said you might as well pretend that one could steal the towers of Notre Dame when he heard that the Mona Lisa had been stolen. So it was a bit of a gag. It was a caper. Yeah. So at the time you have to imagine that unlike now when the Mona Lisa gets its own wall, it was on a wall with many other things and also it's quite small and also it's quite drab like colours wise. There's nothing really bright or that stands out about it where when you look at a hazy wall full of paintings, you will immediately notice that something's missing. Mm. So it tracks. Yeah. My favourite thing about this is that like it was stolen on a pretty quiet moment in the Louvre yeah. on a Monday morning, but that the three handymen had just stayed in an art supply closet overnight even as like are. their like prep for this heist. <laughs> I want a movie on that night, you know? I want a documentary on, like, you know, what do they talk about? What do they get up to? They, they're in the museum. Is this, like, a night at the museum-style thing? Like, I'd love to see that. Yeah, like, you you want to imagine them, like, frolicking around the rest of the museum, like, yeah. ideally. You know, having fun dancing around, the statues, you know? I can hit, There's this whole montage in my mind. Pretending I'm... to be French royalty? Yeah. <laughs> We've been robbed of this film. 
I mean, I just think that like a genuine film about a real art heist, not the dramatics that is like the Oceans movies or other art heist movies, would be fascinating in itself. We've seen so many very, very comical art heists. That is one of those like heists at an art gallery where everything could have gone wrong that like you can't actually script it, but the fact that it's based on a true story means that you can use it as a movie plot i mean you can make a movie that is essentially like a bottle episode kind of movie of them just stuck in that closet yeah (laughs) and just the things that they would be talking about i would love to see it that's the premise of a lot of plays right where like you're just spending like a couple of hours with a bunch of characters and then things happen around them are all plays bottle episodes (laughs) well (laughs) No, because Shakespeare, but yes, because plays. Yeah, I think that's going to be my new approach to plays. I'm like, it's just a bottle of <laughs> So the work's been stolen. It was, he, Perugia managed to take it away off the walls. And then it was hidden for two years. And I really think that is in those two years. The scandal sort of took a life, took on its own life, captured the public imagination, and it really made the Mona Lisa sexy famous. Look. We love a missing painting Yeah. once we know about it. <laughs> so it's just a lot of times, like, you know, conspiracies to prop up and, you know, all those things. A few famous names were sort of caught up in it for some reason. Guillaume Apollinaire and also Picasso sort of came up as a name that could be linked. I'm not quite sure why. Have you come across this one, Michelle? They both got arrested. Yeah. That's how far it went. It wasn't just, like, people thought. It was the police thought that they had taken it. Yeah. Picasso isn't, <laughs> in a weird way, wouldn't have been about that. It's more he's into doing his weird kind of sexy shit <laughs> as well. Like, he's too busy dating, like, women that are already married to be stealing the Mona Lisa. Yeah, he's got other crimes to be thinking about. <laughs> he's already got enough women on the brain. He doesn't need to think about this old <laughs> noble woman from the 1500s it's very funny given our dislike of picasso picasso derogatory to think that he got arrested <laughs> for this especially it's the few times that we say justice for picasso <laughs> <laughs> only because he wanted him to get arrested for his actual crimes yeah <laughs> don't frame him he's got enough on his plate <laughs> in the period of time when it was stolen didn't it get used as like the false face of like a trunk or something as well I haven't heard that one. I love that, though. I have heard that one before. I do believe there is, at least, if it's not true, it is a genuine rumour that it was basically the false face. Or it was in the false face of, like, a like a suitcase, essentially. Yeah, I think Perugia's have just hidden it away in his room. It wasn't, you know, like, in an underground bunker or, like, in a train station, you know? It was just sort of hanging out. In a Swiss vault. Yeah, where they mostly stolen artworks. On a yacht. It deserves its own yacht. (laughs) That's where one of the other Da Vinci's is. Well, rumoured Da Vinci. Yeah, so in these two years, everyone was wondering, where is she? Her image was being reprinted in all the newspapers. It was great. Eventually, Perugia decides to take it to Italy and offers to sort of sell it back to the Italian government because he sort of saw the French government as having stolen a priceless piece of Italian heritage. Well, you know, that hasn't changed. I feel like we're still doing that today. (laughs) Having seen crimes where people are taking things under the excuse of nationalism. 
right? Mm. Yeah. So he offered to sell it back for 500,000 lire, which isn't like a huge amount. Like it's money, but it's not like, you know, what we would try to sell the Mona Lisa for today. Well, yeah, it's now at the point where one cannot sell the Mona Lisa. It is forbidden. I don't know. They're trying to sell it as an NFT. (laughs) I looked that up before we started. How much is the NFT going for? It's not actually properly advertised because there is one owner and they're like, we want a 10% commission, but it's like, okay, but but what's the price? (laughs) Actually tell us the price. Apparently not. I would guess half a milli though. Clearly. For a little image. You can download it for free on the internet. Mm-hmm. So he tried to sell it back and then he was obviously caught out of that. But before before the painting was taken back to the Louvre, it had a little tour around Italy. And, you know, I think it really captured a sense of nationalism and like national pride in Da Vinci. He went on this tour, everyone loved it. And I think that really sort of heightened its importance. Yeah, you have these major countries. The Louvre is still a palace. Yeah. Palace is missing a thingy getting the thingy back and also I guess even though it would have been insignificant probably when you're printing it as like missing painting the face does look quite enigmatic in the way that captures people's attention where they're not just like oh a painting of a flower got stolen it's like who is this woman and where is she who is she for a while, I actually like didn't realize that we knew who she was. I feel like for most of my life, I've been like, "Oh, it's it's an interesting painting because we don't know who she is." But then I looked it up, and it was just like one of the first things I read about. It. I'm like, "Oh, well, that's the confirmations that it was Lisa of Gioconda yeah. kind of happened in this century, if I recall correctly." Uh, yeah, because before that, there were some swanky danky rumors of like who she could be or like what she is an image of. Mm. So it was still ambiguous and it would have been ambiguous at the time of the theft as well. And so basically she came back home to the Louvre and she has her enigmatic presence only increased and her hold over popular imagination just keeps going on. We can now no longer talk about art to people without them eventually bringing it up. How many steps (laughs) till we talk about something in relation to the Mona Lisa is the game. Mm. What is art? Mona Lisa. I mean, people will just be like, she has no eyebrows and not really smiling, but at least she doesn't have the whack hairline that the rest of the paintings of that time seem to have with noble women. The Tudor eggs! She doesn't have any hairline. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she has a stronger hairline than, like, the Tudor eggs do at the very least. To be fair, this is the one non-religious, like, female subject where she isn't in a crazy amount of what we would consider a finery because a lot of the other ones do end up just feeling a little bit over the top or at least it's like it's weird. She looks really simple despite the fact that she's clearly a noble woman, which I think people then can project themselves onto, which sounds all deep and shit, but it's not really. It's just people saying, oh my God, a brown-haired white girl, that's so me, which... I can attest, I sometimes do that. <laughs> She's the girl next door, the original girl next door. Yeah, you can't fix her. She's been dead for 500 years. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
is she the queen's cousin? We didn't know forever. We don't think so because she's not wearing what you think the queen's cousins would wear. Yeah, so she's back. She's living it up. She's in the Louvre. She's all important and hoity-toity now. And we've been haunted by her ever since. And this has that wasn't the only attempt on her life. Like, she's <laughs> suffered through many other, other scandals that have just kept on coming at her. You know, give her a break. In 1956, someone threw a rock at her. And in the same year, someone tried to take a razor blade to the painting. I think when I read the article about the stone throwing, I think he just had a rock in his pocket and he was like, oh, might as well throw it. And the razor blade one is almost funnier because it is the classic I can fix her thing in the sense of like a guy was in love with the painting and in a sense in love with the subject of the painting and tried to cut out the portrait <laughs> to um, steal her. But, you know, that's, that's when they were like, oh, maybe we should put bulletproof glass in front of this. <laughs> I think that's even funnier, given that if you wanted to cut her out of her frame, you would need more than just a small razor blade because she is not a canvas work. She is on a poplin board. That is the only way she was able to be the whole space of a trunk. (laughs) So true. So true. Like, you can't Um, roll her up and ship her out. She's a bit more hefty than we originally thought. Yeah. Yeah, Um, I feel like the two ways you go about that stone throw is either is kind of man-possessiveness, or this man is outraged because he too is underwhelmed at the scale of this painting. Yeah. <laughs> the two warring wolves in his head were really battling it out with yes, this stone like, in his pocket. The impulsive yeah. wolf won that, though. <laughs> yes. It continues in 1974 when the Mona Lisa went on tour, one of many, and so she went to Japan and she was in Tokyo. This one I is actually... I find very interesting, uh, this 25-year-old Japanese woman um, tried to spray paint the canvas red. And she wasn't just doing it for shits and gigs. She was protesting the museum's refusal to allow those with access needs entry to the exhibition under the guise of crowd control. Tomoko Yonezu, she was actually doing something interesting, not just throwing a rock. <laughs> for shits and gigs. It was ahead of her time, protesting for a purpose, just fucking with art in the process oh yeah. yeah but like i think that is already indicative that the mona lisa has taken on this cultural symbolism of representing art and mm. the museum and that entire industry basically at this time yeah. it's no longer a dinky little painting it's like to attack the mona lisa is to have it's- commentary about a museum in general I think so. Mona Lisa then had a few peaceful years, but in 2009, uh, a woman smashed a teacup against the painting. Um, she was a Russian woman and she did it because she was denied French citizenship. So, again, going back to what you just said, Michelle, sort of like the Mona Lisa becoming iconic of institution of France, of that sort of like French culture. The most mm-hmm. precious thing France has. Yeah. Which is ironic because she's Italian. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> True, truly, truly Italian to its core. There are there are French masterpieces in that gallery, and it was like, nah, I've got to get the one that like people are crowding around. Yeah, uh, I don't think she ever got French citizenship. I I'd have to check that bit, but um, yeah, um, I don't think like smashing a teacup is seen as a sign for the French government to get on with it. It would be like someone protesting being denied Australian citizenship by throwing a teacup at Alex Blue Poles. Did you say that'd be the equivalent? No. 
that's because that painting shouldn't even be in this country. <laughs> well, that's what people thought about the Mona Lisa. <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's less iconic. It's got to be something that, like, like a good painting that won the Archbold 20-odd years ago. <laughs> I just feel like Pollock's Blue Poles is, like, the one that had a lot of, like, publicity about it. It's the one that people remember being in the newspaper. I think the difference, at least me personally, is that, like, the Mona Lisa is the painting that, like, your granddad goes, now that's art, not, like, blue poles. <laughs> I think that people genuinely do not like blue poles and have issues with it, whereas people objectively will say that, like, the Mona Lisa is art. You will hear endless debates about abstract pieces. <laughs> yeah. Smash a teacup against the Sydney Nolan, I say. Hmm. One of the There's already glass in blue poles anyway, so you know. Yeah. Add some more to it. Maybe they weren't murders, probably. <laughs> but my favorite Mona Lisa scandal is just this year when a protester against climate change came into the museum in a wheelchair, just dressed as a woman, and then smeared the Mona Lisa with cake. And then threw rose petals around the room as security guards escorted them out. That's a way to protest in France. Yeah. Like, it's got style, it's got panache. <laughs> it's got it's a got reveal. Disguises. <laughs> that's the bit I don't understand. But I like that's a bit of a full circle moment where, you know, in 1974, Tomoko was protesting people with, uh, with you know, access requirements you know, not being able to see the painting. And then, you know, she led the way for in 2002 for a man dressed as a woman in a wheelchair to be able to get close to the work to smear yeah. cake on it. So it's a nice moment for me. Yeah. Now, Jackie, we would love to hear your thoughts on this specific instance, yeah. but also, you know, about this in general. I personally am not a big fan of this style of protesting especially if it happens in Australia, because I want us to keep getting good artworks. And I think that if it happens all the time here, then we stop getting these iconic art pieces. I think that's less of an issue at the Louvre. I also think that, like, ultimately, this protest isn't going to do anything until you actually damage a painting. Stop throwing soup at paintings with glass over them. It's not doing anything. People just think you're dickheads. Whereas if you actually attack something like water lilies, which you there's not glass in front of, but I'm sure there will be in the next six months um, because there's got to be concern about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whilst I don't think that like it's a good thing to be damaging these paintings, your message still actually needs to work. And right now it's just yelling at a wall. <laughs> like, And no one really cared beyond that. Like they, they cleaned the glass. People were back in that room six hours later. Well, not even six hours later, probably an hour and a half later. Like, it just doesn't make a difference ultimately. And there are better ways to protest. I just, I think that this is good at like the virality part. It's not good at making stodgy old people that don't give a fuck about climate change because they're going to die in six months anyway who <laughs> care about your message. Yeah. The reason why they do it is very much because of the virality more than anything. So, Exactly. I don't think that uh, attacking oil paintings, which is a completely different kind of oil that is used uh, in fuel, is going to impact the stock oil movement. 
and that kind yeah. of thing. It's a bit of a roundabout way of protesting that I still just don't quite understand the intricacies of, like, what what message, what is the message? It's just unclear to me. Go egg Elon's house or something. He already ruined our favourite toy, so, you know. So that is that is the chokehold that Mona Lisa now has on, like, on us and our culture, is that anything happens to her and we immediately know about it. And well, everything we've been talking about so far is stuff that has happened to the painting physically. Mm-hmm. Like people who approach the painting and have chosen violence. They chose violence, yes. <laughs> no one's done an actual like psych- psychiatric evaluation on the Mona Lisa. See if she's doing okay after 100 years of abuse. Yeah. Of like, being yeah. stared at. All she's those cameras. Right. Also, a lot has happened to her within pop culture and representations of her in film, in music, in fashion, in books, everywhere, basically. And I think these can be condensed down to, like, a couple of different takeaways, one of which is very much this, like, she's emblematic of this enigmatic woman, right? Mm. She's a mystery. We can't figure her out. It's, like, the ideal subject matter of, well, like, songs by a specific type of male artist she's the manic pixie dream girl she wore converse to prom that's <laughs> five i get <laughs> that's fair considering she got a panic at the disco song where her name is in the title in that era where like people that weren't other girls despite everyone doing it were wearing <laughs> short dresses and converse to prom <laughs> she's not like other girls <laughs> she's yeah she's different she's relatable but she's not relatable she's so close but she's so far you don't understand her but you do (laughs) so we have you know woman Mona Lisa woman Mm -hmm. basically what kind of woman is she we ask the other woman but also I think Mona Lisa very much gets tied into the aura of Leonardo da Vinci and kind of the air of genius that we've given him, being like he's so ahead of his time and he was so good at everything that he did, which, like, he had many thoughts, as you would say, Isabel. Yeah. And people just let him do things. But at the time, you definitely know that the rest of his peers were like, so so, so he's a bit of a weirdo. He's digging graves at the moment, but don't worry. He's a town eccentric. Everyone's like, oh, what's he up to these days? I'm like, oh, he's, you know. Jumping off a cliff to test out some wings he made in there. Like, yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, sounds about right. He thinks he understands how the perfect man is. Yeah. Yeah. He's the town's reality TV show. There's <laughs> there's drama all over the place, from his weird adventures to, like, oh, he's got a new art piece that's about to come out to, you know, he's got arrested at least once for uh, soliciting a male prostitute. Like, you know, it's just constant drama. I like if you were living in that town, it's either you're the old folks that are like, Oh, there he goes again. I'm so sick of him. Why can't <laughs> they just like kick him out of the town? Or you're like, What is the Vinky doing today? Because yeah. I'm gonna go and watch. Yeah. Do you reckon someone had like a little fan blog of what the Vinky was doing? <laughs> George Vasari. Yeah. <laughs> just gonna say, is that that's his apprentices, surely. Yeah. That's the equivalent of being a groupie at that time. Oh, yeah. No, no. His apprentices in his workshop were basically just, like, gossiping about him while they were, like, doing their work. (laughs) 
just being like, oh, did you hear what he's thinking about now? Because like all the exhibitions about him are like, you know, he had all these diagrams and prototypes for inventions and like none of them worked. But (laughs) isn't his brain cool? And he had all these thoughts about math and he really wanted to know about like biology and like the anatomy of the human body. And you're like, great. What a nerd. (laughs) Yeah, what a nerd. (laughs) He was thinking and doing all these things. And now we kind of think about him as being a genius because he was dabbling in all this stuff and just conjecturing so wildly, especially during the period of time when we thought he did have a point before we were like, oh, actually, that wouldn't have worked. Mm. I don't think that invention is viable. But he had some good ideas. It's like nice try stars for every single project that he presented. Like, like, you tried. Nice try. Good job. A great effort. I think the thing also is, though, is, like, yeah, there's the gold stars, but also it's the, oh, my God, Da Vinci inspo. Like, <laughs> so many things that have been invented uh, now and especially in the early 20th century is Da Vinci inspired. And also, like, we kind of model what our concept of a UFO is off a Da Vinci, like, vehicle. There's so much stuff that is just ingrained in things that Da Vinci created that you don't even notice it and let's be real he's more of an inventor than Edison ever was like there's that old Simpsons joke that like Edison was trying to catch up to Da Vinci which yes most of Da Vinci's inventions were failures but also Edison didn't invent shit he financed everything that's how he does it (laughs) part of his weird nerdy behavior was that he used to write mirror right like yeah used to write from right to left backwards sort of and backwards so like it was like you would only be able to read it if you put it in front of a mirror he's just trying so hard (laughs) did anyone tell he didn't have to do any of this they were like oh you can just write normally no one actually is going to read this and then we all did anyway it reminds me of um oh man this is a dumb reference but Blair Waldorf in season five of Gossip Girl is she's like I started writing, writing all my diaries in code because I thought that my mom was reading them it's just like man come on you don't, you don't need to do that no one cares yeah like, no I mean one... people people very much care now but back then no one cares I think like... he could not anticipate his like reception now <laughs> I mean, I'd argue that maybe he could because why else would you write in code or backwards in his case? The coded writing in his math brain is what launched the idea of him as being this, like, genius 8D chess player who Mm. has just put, like, a boatload of hints in every single painting of his that's going to lead us to something. Yeah. Like, who is this treasure hunt for? Like, why these riddles? Whose shitty birthday party are we at? Where we have to look at all his paintings in order to figure out something, and we can't even decide what that something is. Mm. I don't know. The Da Vinci Code tried. Yes, the Da Vinci Code would say it's leading you to (laughs) chalice or something. The no, what is it? The Holy Grail. Holy Grail. That's the word. Indiana Jones got there, and now Dan Brown's like, "But what if? But what what if?" if?" I was going to say, I'm, I'm much more in favour of the Nazi melting Indiana Jones holy grail than um, whatever is going on in the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, because then they're just like, it's called the holy grail, but it's not even a cup, I'm pretty sure. 
It's a chalice. Yeah, some, something yeah. lame like something that. Something stupid like that. Well, it's a metaphor is what it is. Yeah, no, no. It's a metaphor if I remember correctly. It's a metaphor. It's, it's actually like this. It's a metaphor thing. for a woman. Like it's for yeah. Mary yeah, yeah. The Sorry. woman is the cup. <laughs> yeah, it's really gross the more I think about it. Yeah. Sorry, spoiler um, for anyone who still hasn't read or seen The Da Vinci Code. Uh, you're not missing anything though, you're not missing so. anything. <laughs> yeah what can we say about the da vinci code i don't know what is he an archaeologist i don't think he's an archaeologist no he's just like a university lecturer yeah but what does he lecture in i don't know codes he's a symbolist symbologist or something that oh yeah no he, he he loves them a code and then he just gets swept up because some weird priest is doing kooky cult stuff yeah and then there's um, a younger woman that isn't inextricably attracted to him like it's just such a such a time the da vinci code is basically trying to piece together all these things about from da vinci paintings about like what do things represent and they're like hey guess what guys um so uh what if the mona lisa this non-religious painting was secretly religious Mm. have you considered religion (laughs) in your mona lisa yeah which, like, no, I do not wish to consider religion in the Mona Lisa. It's also done in the stupidest way. He has, like, seven billion am- anagrams of, like, weird Latin phrases, which, like, that's not that, 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 that's not how this is. Like, that's not the methodology that we were looking for. It's, like, Mona Lisa is, like, half man, half woman in representation of half her face. Mm. it's like the masculine side and half her face is the feminine side or it's like da vinci as a woman or something yes this is a da vinci self-portrait in the form of a portrait that he was commissioned to paint for someone else or it's his mum, i guess if you want that as yeah. a, a potential or it could be him trying to paint like the virgin mary via a portrait as well yeah. like dan brown leave her alone dan brown needs to leave all art alone is the Da Vinci Code actually the biggest crime against her, though? Like, honestly, she went missing for two years, and it's like, that movie's still worse yeah. somehow. Yeah, well, the worst part is that, like, the phrase the Da Vinci Code is now in the culture because this oh. 8D chess player can't stop. It's like the Free Britney stuff where, like, every single thing she did was a code or, like, a signal to yeah. people that she was, like, not okay, right? Yeah, it's like the oh, fact that I know the YouTube you're talking about. <laughs> it's um Marina something. That's like you know a secret code that pop star uses, pop stars use to tell their fans that they're being. Yeah. Taylor Swift's Gayla fans. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Everything she does is a secret sign that her boyfriend's a beard and she's actually gay. It's like yeah. Six years as a beard, it's rough, buddy. It's quite a commitment. I would add that, like, I don't think that the religious aspect of the Mona Lisa is, like, that's the most realistic part of it, in a way, in the sense of a lot of Da Vinci's works were religious. As I said before, I think the reason why it is so iconic is the fact that she's not religious and all of Da Vinci's other big works are very explicitly religious Bible scenes. And so people wanting to impose that on her, especially at the time that the Da Vinci Code was written, which was, what, 2003. So this it's like a post-Satanic Panic novel, which means that you're probably going to get another one in, like, 10 years. It was the Satanic Panic 2.0. 
with that. It's like, I, I see how it happens. I don't see how you think that it's Mary Magdalene because then instead of her being a noble woman, you're also implying that she's a prostitute. But, you know, people that are into the King James Bible don't want to talk about that. Mm, there you go. So then people were just going way too deep into it now like there have been a whole bunch of articles that I've seen while like prepping for this episode which like use the phrase the da Vinci Code in relation to the Mona Lisa and that painting is like in the book but it's not the most significant painting in the book I think he spends so much more time on the last supper so fun 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 and and these ones are basically just like did you know that there are numbers in her eyes I didn't and I don't (laughs) need to right like, what's at the end of this treasure hunt? Like, what what great truth are we looking for that we're going to get it through, like, numbers? Yes. And, like, uh, uh, like, we're staring at these artworks and making theories of the background. And truly, like, this is what happens when academics engage in their most fanish, fanboyish behavior. Mm. Is all I, I also, I find it really hard to believe that, like, the... I don't know, body of Mary Magdalene was in Scotland or wherever it did. Like, it's in England where the movie ends. Like, come on, the English really, they're stealing the body of Mary Magdalene and putting her up in Scotland? Why? Like, what's the point? That's the thing. It's like there is no point, like, to any of it. Like, we achieve nothing by understanding what the Mona Lisa is. Like, we just leave it alone yeah like just let her be mysterious yeah just a girl standing in front of a boy telling him <laughs> to stop finding numbers in her eyes yeah and it's now slightly also put onto the entire town of florence where like there's codes and things now and we get to unlock the secrets and we get to decode <laughs> things and ooh, isn't it fun <laughs> and if you win you just win the city of florence <laughs> If you find all the numbers. Uh. Then you've got to hang around Italians and, like, given how they're electing people, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Just collect the taxes on the city of Florence. We are slightly wiser from, like, an art historical standpoint of what we think of the context around, like, the, the creation of the Mona Lisa in terms of, like, figuring out who she is, a little bit of where she might be. But all this, what was in Da Vinci's mind when he was creating his artworks is like, we have not figured anything out. And I'm quite happy to leave it that way. Yeah, basically. So yeah, that is a crime against the Mona Lisa of trying to like give her secret code. Coding. A crime. Encryption. um, Any other sort of crimes against her that we see, we've seen recently, Michelle? This is the way she has been used in film and music and stuff, but we really can't talk about any mysterious enigmatic woman without talking about how fashion has treated her, can we? No, not at all. And in a particularly horrific crime in recent years. Most egregious. Most egregious. The one I'm still suffering from is... Louis Vuitton's, I guess it's sort of like a collaboration, but I don't know who said Is it yes. a Coons collaboration? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so fashion brand Louis Vuitton collaborated with contemporary artist Jeff Coons to create a limited edition series of handbags 
but they weren't sporting Jeff Koons's artwork. It was all, I would say, just the top five artworks that everyone's heard of, including the Mona Lisa. Just splashed across their little Neverfull bags and their other iconic Louis Vuitton bags was just the Mona Lisa with Da Vinci on. In, and they were just ugly, weren't they, Michelle? They really were ugly. So on top of that, again, you have the little emblems that Louis Vuitton likes to use on yeah. his classic bag design as well. And these are in kind of the hardware. These bags all like crop every single painting that they touch. So in the case of the Mona Lisa ones, it's literally just her head and her neck, mm. which like is not my vibe. No. They choose like some real danky colours to pair yeah. with it for all the finishings. Things like a well. blue. A blue for Davinci, like a Yeah, gold. there's the blue and then there's like that weird corally red as well. Yeah. Both bad, both undesirable. Mm. That's all I can say. Well also the one with the Rubens is like a really ugly blue colour. <laughs> exactly. They're just so aesthetically unpleasing and just completely reductive in their treatment of these artworks. Just the way Da Vinci is just stamped onto her cheeks. Yeah. Well, and also there's like, because there's obviously different sizes between the bags. So there's a couple of different versions of this Da Vinci Mona Lisa one. And there's one where her face ends up looking really distorted because it doesn't actually like print onto a bag in the way that it like would and end up looking normal because obviously there's curves to the fabric and that sort of thing. I just cannot believe they thought they could get away with it. Because <laughs> I've seen, you know, some collaborations with artists and they work so well. However, this one is really emblematic of the sort of branding. You know, it's this combination of the Louis Vuitton brand and like the icons that surround the Louis Vuitton brand with their sort of the shapes of their bags as well as the little emblem and the little symbols that they have and the idea of the Mona Lisa as just sort of being representative of art as a whole and to just sort of combine those two I guess it does sort of reflect on Jeff's Coons a sort of interest in consumer culture but it's just done in the most hideous way possible and it's hideous because it's lazy It's just like, this is the kind of thing that you expect someone who is making merch for the first time. Yes. Like newly opened Etsy shop. That's the vibe. (laughs) I mean, what he should have done, and it actually would have ended up being iconic, is do the like inflatable dog as a handbag and then just have like the LV print all around it and maybe give it like a metallic look so that it further matches it. Like, Something that, you know, makes sense for, like, the work that he's done rather than making, uh, like, Louis Vuitton look even more tacky than it already is because we all know that it's, like, the upper middle class Midwesterner, like, oh, this is how you know that I'm more wealthy than, like, Sandra at the bake sale. (laughs) Every time I've seen those bags in Melbourne, I've been, like, I just can't get over how ugly they are. Like, I would accept a bad collaboration if it was some thought had gone into the design, but this was just no thoughts. No thoughts, but, like, does Coons have a thought these days? I mean, like, his work's not the worst. It's not the best. Not at all. 
However, I will say you weren't here for this discussion, Jackie, but your metallic balloon dog bag idea perfectly matches Isabel's inflatable balloon dog metallic inspired F1 car that we talked about a couple of weeks ago yeah. that did not make the cut of the episode. Let's be real. You can use it as promotional material. F1 teams charge a fortune for their merchandise. So the little handbag is like a version of the car, but also <laughs> I can get the um, actual art. Oh, you don't know this, Isabel. This is the best. Speaking of heists and um, sports, when they were promoting Ocean's 12, they decided to do some kind of collaboration between the F1 and the promotions for this movie. Oh, God, it's so stupid. They got Brad Pitt and George Clooney to arrive at the track. That's the not stupid part. It's like, that's what we do now. But then whose car was it, Jackie? Uh, The Jaguar F1 team. Uh, as far as who the driver was at the time, but not 100% sure. Yeah, Jaguar F1 team, as a promotion in partnership with the movie, embed a diamond, like a real diamond, into the front of the F1 car that is supposed to be racing that weekend. It's just silly. In Monaco, which is one of like the tightest tracks on the season, it's just very hard to manoeuvre around. People crash all the time. And this is a diamond that is worth $300,000 that they put on. And I will correct myself, both cars, each one had its own diamond. It's just silly. So in the grand scheme of narrative storytelling, we now have Chekhov's embedded diamond in a car. (laughs) What do you think inevitably is going to happen to Chekhov's embedded diamond in a car? Oh, I mean, you don't embed a diamond in the car unless it's going to crash, do you? Yeah, so... (laughs) And I think this is the part where it's funny because it's like you kind of just go, how far into the race is this diamond going to last? Uh, it does not last a lap. It survives practice sessions. It surprisingly survives qualification. And then on lap one, one of the Jaguar drivers end up putting the nose of the car into the wall. The um, diamond is on the nose. And, you know, it, it was a pretty low-speed crash, so everyone was thinking, like, oh, it'll be fine. The diamond will still be in there. Diamond missing very quickly <laughs> and if you actually look at the photos like the front of the nose of the car is fucked so the spot where the diamond should be is broken and you're just like where is it because if it's embedded in the wall that like that's easy but you know it wasn't and no one heard from it again kind of <laughs> to this I day just... we have not known where this diamond is after it was smooshed into the wall in Monaco. You know, I feel like throughout these podcasts, I've been like, you know, there's been a scope of like having a thought and really going for it, aka Anna Del Bay. Having no thoughts, Jeff Coons and those LV bags. And this is just sort of like having one very silly thought and no one questioning it. It's either that or they intentionally had a missing diamond because this is a movie about a heist. Yes. Yes, or it's like, you know, Galaxy Brain. They're playing... Galaxy Brain PR psychos only. (laughs) Yeah, but it's just like for PR people, so it's like no one... It's not... doesn't make any sense for anyone else. I think the additional funny part of it is, and it is... It's technically unrelated, but it just adds to the drama, is that the Jaguar F1 team then got sold at the end of the year. It became Red Bull, which is now a team, you know, it's it's the energy drink team, but it's like... the. It's currently in the championship. Um, but it's like, oh, did you actually get bitten in the ass? 
like because nothing really came out of it and i think that that's the funny part is that a diamond worth three hundred thousand dollars it there was just no investigation and whether it was insured or not like it's still a diamond worth three hundred thousand dollars why wasn't there a proper investigation in the end but no those bags are ugly and i'm glad that i've not seen one in ages so am i right no mercies the benefit of not going into the city as much yeah but people aren't even wearing those bags into the city anymore true like people caught on really quickly how tacky they are thankfully not quick enough yeah like ideally they would have caught on a bit quicker if i'm trying to think about like the tacky bag of the moment the lv ones with all the little pockety bits uh, it is just like it's all over ton. It's the tacky bag of the moment. It has been for what fifteen years since Gucci gifted it to Snooky. You sent me a thing relating to this. It's like the oh things that old money people buy. They ain't buying a Louis Vuitton. <laughs> I can tell you that. And ultimately, it is the performance of wealth rather than genuine wealth. And I say that from a place of no wealth. <laughs> so you know. Yep. Louis Vuitton's um, collaborations with art very much are hit and miss for this reason. The Yaoi Kusama one was genius, and there have been many, unfortunately, that have been trash garbage. So I think that's the biggest like fashion crime against Mona Lisa. Mm. There are other ways that she's just been kind of used and it's been fine. A lot of ads and campaigns and stuff where people recreate it, a lot of parodies. But those are genuinely, like, fun, not necessarily crimes, I think. Yeah, I would agree there. Probably the most notable that people remember of recent times is when uh, Beyonce was given the okay by the Louvre to film in front of it for her music video, Ape Shit, with Jay-Z. If anything, that was the perfect time for someone to try and steal it again. Yeah, because they're like, no one else was in the gallery. Look, they couldn't pin the blackout of the Super Bowl on Beyonce. You're not going to be able to pin the theft of Mona Lisa on her either. Genius plan. She's just untouchable, like the Mona Lisa. And I think that about covers our general uh, exploration and rumination on the Mona Lisa and why it is the hot shit of the moment and why it's going to keep staying that way, presumably forevermore, until Mm -hmm. something else happens to some other painting that overtakes it. Yeah, got to be pretty drastic in order for that to happen, I'd say. I mean, there's just been about 100 years of Mona Lisa being stared at, rocks thrown at her, being stolen, everything's gone on. Yeah, I wouldn't wish that on another painting. The only thing that I think that has gotten a similar type of ire, well, like more ire, I would say, and it was done intentionally so, is very much Marcel Duchamp with that year and all of his. Yeah. But very different context. She was just like living her life and here she is. Hmm. Oh, that's your that's your scene. That's your Mona Lisa movie. It begins with just a zoom in on the Mona Lisa and then like record scratch. So you're probably wondering how I got you like this. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, me right there. There. I think we could really put together a great film about the Mona Lisa. You know, it would just be, it would be a bottle episode of those men waiting in the cupboard, but it would begin with that little record scratch moment. And I think it could be a really great heist film. There we go. We will, <laughs> that's we'll what we're going to do. We'll keep working on that one. Yes. 
And we're going to have a bit of time to develop on that because this is officially the final episode of this season of Crimes Against Art. To our listeners who have been with us from the beginning, to our listeners who joined us partway, whether it was because we were talking about Nodlers or Anna Delvey or Monkey Jesus or Basquiat or Freedom Musicals, uh, we are glad to have grabbed your attention, even if you just started listening now because you know about the Mona Lisa. (laughs) We should have started with this one, Michelle. Then people would have known what we're talking about. (laughs) I think they have learned much about art crimes through the duration of our wonderful little 10-episode stint. Mm. Um, We are grateful to all of you for listening along and tuning in to what truly is just a, a, a passionate topic of conversation between Isabel and I that we have just given an outlet for via this podcast. We are going to be hard at work on season two and looking at other fun stories to bring you then. But in the meantime, do keep an eye out on social media for us in order to see updates and our thoughts and feelings about any fun shenanigans that happen while we are not on the air because we are most certain that there are going to be many a thing happening. Absolutely. There's going to the be world, more thrown at art, don't you worry. The world of art crime never stops for no one, not even our little podcast. No. Isabel, where can we find you for your hot little thoughts on this? Ah, so you can find my thoughts on Twitter at Lake 5 so B-E-L-L-A-K-E, numeral 5. And Michelle, where can we find you? You can find me on Instagram at m.ch.ll.g and you can find me on Twitter at m underscore ch underscore ll underscore g double underscore. And Jackie, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me at dodsy161 on Twitter if it's still running by the time this episode comes <laughs> out, Instagram right. and TikTok. Um, <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much anywhere you can find me is that. <laughs> You can also find the podcast at Art Crimes Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Crimes Against Art is also part of the Edge of the Crowd network. So you can find Edge of the Crowd at Edge of the Crowd on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. We've added onto that LinkedIn and MySpace and Be Real and OnlyFans clearly throughout the, <laughs> our episodes of other places to find Edge of the Crowd. So you can try your luck. I don't know how successful you're going to be at that. But you can definitely read our articles about art, culture, politics, sport, wherever they intersect, whether it's diamonds in F1 cars (laughs) or bags that look bad at www.edgeofthecrowd.com. So thank you so much for listening and we will see you soon, probably sometime in early 2023. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much, Michelle, for chatting with me every week and thank you, Jackie, for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. Thank you for painting the home. Always has thoughts about it. <laughs> Our absolute pleasure. It is a painting that has many thoughts and that everyone has thoughts about. <laughs> <laughs>